1: Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Latin American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Candela Marini, your host, and today we're talking with historian Corina Zelsman. Corina is an assistant professor of history at Georgia Southern University. Her research examines the history of printing and the book, political culture and labor in 19th century Mexico. In this episode, we're going to discuss her new book, Ink Under the Fingernails, Printing Politics in 19th Century Mexico, published this year, 2021, by the University of California Press. Welcome, Karina. and thank you so much for being here with us today. Hi, Candela. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here. So let's start this interview with a little bit about yourself. Uh, let's learn about the writer behind this book. <laughs> Could you share a little bit about uh, your formation, how you got interested in Latin American history and the history of printing and the book in particular? Yeah. Uh,
0: so I grew up in the New York suburbs. And as a young student, I um, took Spanish class. And when I went off, I really loved learning language. Um, it clicked with me it was something that was exciting. And when I went off to college um, at Wesleyan University, I immediately gravitated towards classes in uh, Latin American uh, literature, history, politics, I basically took as many classes as I could with the faculty there. And um at the same time, I was getting a sort of, I had a parallel interest that I stumbled into, which was the world of letterpress printing and book arts. Um, and so I had been developing that as like a side interest. Um, I had an internship at the Center for Book Arts in New York, um, and I was taking classes in printing and book arts and, and design and typography Um, And then when I went off, um, my my mentor, Anne Whiteman, was a historian of um, the Andes. And so when I did a study abroad, she sort of steered me towards a program in in La Paz, in Bolivia. Um, And when I came back from that really formative and and wonderful year, um, I figured out that I could merge those interests. And I made um, an artist book slash research project about a festival um, in Bolivia, and I was researching costumes and um, interviewing artisans, costume makers and dancers and festival officials and reading the press and things like that. Uh, And then I turned it into this artist book, which was um, something that I was really grateful that my mentor supported. Um, And then uh, after I graduated from college, I went off to work in the world of um, cultural institutions and in New York. And I worked in particular at the Center for Book Arts for a number of years, I returned to the place where I had done an internship, and um, sort of left the Latin American studies angle behind for a while. But I realized, you know, I kept coming up against these narrative or encountering these narratives about the history of printing, uh, that really had nothing, no mention or interest in Latin America at all. And I, mm. I sort of started to wonder where uh, Latin America fit into that master narrative that I was encountering, which of course was very Gutenberg centric. Um, and that's sort of what brought me back to grad school when I was curious to figure out kind of how I could even in more depth or in a new way, combine my two parallel interests into uh, a research agenda. And I'm, you know, really grateful to all of the mentors that I had at as an undergrad and also The artists and craftspeople that I met in my post um, college years um, who kind of introduced me to different ways of of thinking about craft, uh, thinking about Latin America. Uh, And I am really bummed that I can't share the project with my mentors from Wesleyan, um, who, David Shore and and Anna Whiteman, recently passed away. So I'm uh, really sad that I won't be able to to share it with them, but it's very much the project of their, um, you know, being willing to experiment and think about ways to approach. Uh, academic inquiry in kind of multimedia or creative ways.
1: That's really nice. And your book, as I was telling you before, reconstructs a world um, of printing politics in the long 19th century Mexico, starting in the late colonial era and ending with the collapse of the Porfirio Diaz regiment and the Mexican Revolution. And the amount of w- archival work is truly amazing. You take us to the behind scenes of printing shops, government offices, courtrooms, prison cells, church and school boards, and even the streets of Mexico City. Um, So before delving into the meat of the book, could you describe how you went about doing this research?
0: Yeah. um, You know, I was, I did my my PhD at, at Duke University and my Mentors there were really great about pushing us to try to get into the archives as soon as we could. So, um, helping us write grants and getting in, in, you know, in experience on the ground early on in in, in our um, in our grad careers. So I did some early trips to Mexico, Mexico City. You know, when I was looking around for um, the best way to tackle my interests and turn them into a project, I I had to pick a place, a site, and Mexico was. Was pretty early on. It emerged as the best place to explore printing um, in in Latin America. Just be, you know, because I mean, there's lots of ways you could do it, but because it was the the site of the first printing press in the Americas, it had such a long and established. It was really the center of printing in the Americas, plural, um, for hundreds of years. So I immediately went to the Mexican archives, um, and at first, I was really interested in in printers as artisans and and trying to reconstruct some of their educational experiences. And I was sort of on the trail of of historians who had worked before me about technical education and and guilds and mutual associations and and things like that. Um, But I immediately started finding in these state archives tons of evidence of printers as political actors um, getting into trouble um, contesting being thrown into jail or having their property seized. Um, and so that was a, a thread that very quickly reshaped how the project evolved. Um, and I, you know, basically cast a wide net in terms of archival potential sources. I worked in, in government archives and municipal archives, um, in, Notarial archives, which helped to, so if the state archives sort of help you understand the relationship between printers and and government officials, um, notarial archives were really useful for reconstructing printers' business practices, Um, unlike in contexts that are better studied, like Europe and the US, we really don't have any complete um, publishers' archives for 19th century uh, Mexico. There is one really interesting collection in California, the Sutra Library, where a California businessman purchased the contents of the Abadiano family's bookstore in the 18, the late 19, 19th century and brought it to California to become part of his public um, um, uh, philanthropic donation right to the state of California. Um, so some of those records helped me get a a sense of business practices. Um, And church archives were also important for trying to to understand some of the negotiations between printers and and church officials. And of course, print materials themselves were a really important source um, where I consulted, that I consulted in libraries, um, but also in the archives. It's one of the things I I mentioned in the beginning of the book is the way the Mexican state archives um, become a kind of library Um, For all of these really ephemeral printed documents that may not survive in any other form, except that they were deemed problematic by somebody powerful and ripped off of a wall and filed away in an attempt to sort of track down who was responsible. So, um, you know, the project also made me think a little bit differently about where, you know, you normally think, where do I go to find print materials? I go to a library or, you know, an emiroteca repository of, of newspapers. Um, but I also found that the archives were a really fruitful source of print material uh, as well.
1: Yeah, and it's amazing how we are able to reconstruct the the whole dynamics and take us to the behind the scenes of a printing shop and how they would work and with the kind of things they might be uh, thinking or their interests. Um, it's, it's amazing the amount of detail that you're able to provide.
0: Oh, yeah, and um, that was and I, I forgot that that... Um, a lot of where I reconstructed what it's like inside of a printing shop actually came from the government printing office records, which are in Mexico's state archives. So that people sort of, you know, as researchers, we sort of were, were working with the re- reglamentos, right? These um, uh, articles and rules written by mutual societies about what it's like to be part of a, a proto-union kind of organization, Um, But then I found, you know, I stumbled across these records that were really detailed about giving a little bit of insight into the everyday practices of, of working inside of a state institution. So the state archives provided another layer of information that I think hasn't really been explored before.
1: Yeah, that's really cool. Um, So a book that studies printing politics in a Latin American country necessarily has to dialogue with um, Angel Rama's Letter City (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and his famous argument that uh, urban elites used uh, writing and printing technologies to rule over mainly illiterate societies. But in your book, you seem to correct this premise. Um, Could you explain why and how do you explain then the power and importance of the printing press in a city with low literacy rates?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that Rama's uh, arguments about the lettered city still are, are really powerful and, and thought provoking. Um, after all of these years, um, he really over, you know, one of the, the issues, and of course, it's a, you know, you don't fault someone for a work that's still in progress. Um, you know, he it was a sort of sketch, right, for, for these ideas. But um, I think he kind of overlooks the plebeians who are laboring at the heart of the lettered city, and, and I'm not the first person to make this point. You know, scholars of writing and especially in colonial Latin America have have talked about or uh, and our history have expanded our idea of of what who was participating in these um, with these technologies of of writing and and printing. Um, but you know, if we if we include the 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 fact of a kind of that there's labor right that goes into producing these. Uh, these documents, it kind of opens up not only a sense of who were, it expands our sense of who was part of the lettered city. um, But we also can see the ways that people contested the social hierarchies embedded in, um, in, in writing and printing in a context where not a lot of people had access to literacy. And, you know, one of the points that I make in the book, and then I try to illustrate throughout, is the way that these technologies are a site of contestation, right? Not simply you know, power that is wielded uh, amongst the illiterate, but something that expresses on a certain level the anxieties of those in power, right? How do you um, keep control of a certain, of of this, of of literate power, Um, especially when you have, you know, on on the other hand, on the flip side, um, print as a sort of medium uh, that encapsulates hopes and aspirations, especially of the people who, who are responsible for making it. So what the book tries to do is refocus our, uh, our attentions inside of those working spaces and think a bit about how non-elites associated with print production. And of course, the, the actors associated with printing are very wide ranging. And that's why it's so interesting, because it's really a cross section of society. Um, and precisely that awareness is what lets us see the frictions, the conflicts uh, and the tensions that uh, accompany this sort of transition from a colonial to uh, post-colonial sphere uh, of printed debate
1: And related to this, the other two big names you argue with is uh, Jürgen Habermann's conception of independent an independent public sphere and uh, Benedict Anderson on print capitalism and you argued that um, their descriptions do not fit uh, the printing and political dynamics you found in Mexico City um, mm-hmm. Could you expand on this as well?
0: Yeah, um, the you know the Habermasian idea of the the rational public sphere where people debate uh, in print. You know, one of the issues that I take with it, uh, on the one hand, is that it it is a very North Atlantic story that connects the significance of print to uh, printing as really tied to an expanding market, right? Kind of uh, ex- markets for print expand, printing as you know a technology begins to become more more. Uh, widely available. And then you have this bourgeois public sphere that's emerging. Um, In Mexico, you know, those, those processes work differently, right? You have a, especially in the post-colonial period, when, when the colonial economy collapses, um, you have a very limited market, right? To be a printer is a very challenging, you have to be creative, you have to have the right connections, you have to be politically savvy, um, and, you know, you're not guaranteed to have this expanding market for print. Um, and if you, you know, I, I, I think with Anderson, similarly, this idea that, um, you know, the, the, primary, the primary way in which we, you know, he, he uses this term print capitalism, right, to, that we understand printing as a function of or an appendage of the marketplace. Um, and if you look at Mexico, what I argue you see is something more like a, a form of print clientelism, where, you know politics really matter for for printing, um, and sometimes politics seems to actually drive the market for print rather than the other way around, right? So I trace, you know, a number of moments where essentially there are bubbles, right, for in the printing industry, like when freedom of the press is first declared in 1820, everybody wants to try it out, see what you can do with this new technology, with this new legal system, and and so there's a sort of glut um, of you know, where, where, where a new legal shift and political opportunity is what's driving um, people's experiments with printing. Um, and then in, you know, across much of the 19th century, you know, there are really um, very close relationships um, among printers and political factions, between printers and the state. And it's not just a question of who regulates uh, public speech but also who has the right connections that make it possible to actually maintain a printing business. Um, so if we use those categories, which were developed to describe North Atlantic context, then you know, Mexico and other Latin American countries are always going to come up short, right? But what I argue is that if we actually take Mexico's printing sphere on its own terms, um, then we pluralize our understanding of what printing is how it works differently in different societies because it's a technology that's embedded rather than standing outside of it is embedded in sort of social economic legal and political contexts right so i'm trying to sort of historicize this media technology by taking it on its own terms um, in in you know where it, you wouldn't say that that print is not important in mexico because it's given great importance despite the fact uh, that people are most people are not going to be buying. Uh, not, not, most people are not going to be reading, but but certainly most people are not going to be purchasing print, right? So the idea that we have to use market sort of driven logics to, to make sense of, of this world um, doesn't really hold up.
1: Right. So let's go to the first of these moments you analyze. Before delving into independent Mexico, you described the printing world at the end of the colonial period, uh, which you define as one ruled by the politics of loyalty maybe expanding on what you were talking about just uh, now could you could you explain what you mean by that
0: yeah um, you know to be a printer in late colonial mexico was to have very close connections to the viceregal regime which essentially helped regulate the market you know we think a lot about censorship and what you could and couldn't say in a society with the inquisition which was certainly the case Um, But it was also, uh, there were questions of economics or essentially a political economy of printing in which um, the viceroy and, you know, vice regal officials had uh, some power to shape the marketplace, right, through the extension of licensing and privileges to printers. Um, So kind of juggling printers' various, um, the, the sort of competition amongst printers by handing out these special privileges, which cordoned off the market for print in certain ways. So you really had a a pretty small number of individuals who had created large businesses um, in very centralized businesses in Mexico city and um, had really close connections to, to officials, not just because of, um, you know, on the one hand, because of censorship practicalities, you had to be constantly in communication with authors and censors in order to get licenses to publish. And of course, people emphasized their loyalist credentials constantly when they would republish their title pages that dedicated, you know, the works to particular powerful patrons, or they would reprint their licenses as part of uh, a published work to emphasize the kind of cultural consensus that shapes printing. Um, but also, um, they highlighted their special privileges and status as evidence of their favor and success in navigating um, this colonial world. So you know, printers in, in, we, when we talk about the late colonial era, you know, we also are talking about the era of the Bourbon reforms, this period of enlightened reformism that was sponsored by um, the Spanish monarchs. And printers really took advantage of the enlightened reform spirit as an opportunity to kind of reassert their position in society as purveyors or, or boosters of imperial reform. So in, I, I focus in this first chapter on the newspaper La Gaceta de Mexico, which is the sole news outlet in link colonial Mexico um, for a while. That's founded by, uh, the printer Manuel Antonio Valdez, who becomes the author of the Gazeta de Mexico. Um, so he gains this new identity, not simply as a printer, but also as an author. Um, and he emphasizes at every possible turn his close connections to the Viceroy, right? And, and uh, sort of becoming, this becomes a, pre- you know, you see the way that loyalty, uh, connections to patrons are really a precondition of speaking in print. Uh, And printers become very savvy uh, at using that language um, and also at using it in a way that allows them to create public persona that were not really available to them before as um, boosters of enlightened taste, uh, as purveyors of information that will help with public utility, right? Will help people in Mexico, um, you know, be more economically sufficient or, um, you know, facilitate intercommunication, save people trouble of writing to each other because you've got good news that can, you know, boost the uh, quality of information, but also help to assure that Mexico in the future will be remembered uh, in the archival record, right? Thinking about newspapers as kind of archives in which the glories of imperial reform can be archived for future generations. So printers are really important in, in kind of elaborating these discourses about the role of print as a preservation technology. Uh, and a technology that um Mexico's colonial, uh, well, the, you know, the, the sort of place within an empire would be how I would put it.
1: And so what happened in, uh, with, uh, how did this, uh, this world react to the 1808 events? Uh, that is Napoleon's invasion of the Iberian Peninsula and um, the forced abdication of the King of Spain. How did uh, news travel and who had maybe new access to uh, printing technology?
0: Yeah, it's interesting when 1808 happens and there's this power vacuum um, in the empire, um, suddenly people begin to think that the news might be lucrative um, and people start to try to challenge uh, the monopoly that Valdez has on printing the news, right? So there's a sense that there might be economic opportunity um, and you see various attempts to chip away at Valdez's privileges even before, um, uh, you know, before eventually privileges are going to be abolished. But at this point in 1808, it becomes something that's up for grabs and hotly contested. Um, So one of the things, you know, I looked at when I was doing research for this were reading all of the, um, reading the Gazeta de México very carefully. And one of the things that you learn is that the newspaper was viewed as super important by vice regal officials because people would, uh, because the printer would, reproduce the lists of donors who would donate money to the vice regal, uh, to the Spanish empire's cause in its its struggle against France. Um, And so essentially, the the, the newspaper was a place for helping solidify loyalty within the empire by emphasizing ties and patriotism and encouraging Mexicans to donate to the war effort. Um, And this actually becomes the linchpin that people use subsequent viceroys use to sort of scheme Valdez out of his privilege. So there's this episode that I uh, analyze in the, in the, in the, this chapter where Valdez essentially loses his privilege to publish the news um, because he falls afoul of uh, an enemy, the new viceroy who wants to put his own sort of crony into the position of editor of the Gaceta de Mexico. Um, And Valdez gets in trouble because he's allied with a Spaniard who gets in trouble. And there's the whole, you know, the whole point of these, (laughs) some of these stories are these twisting tales, right? Um, But they're really important to to tease out um, because you can see the way um, that printing politics actually works on the ground, right? One of the things the book does is not just talk about this new world where people start to use, to view print as a good technology for doing politics but also that there's this whole politics of printing itself, right? That behind the scenes, who gets to print for, for whom and what um, becomes a really important um, point of debate. So poor Valdez or whatever, I don't know if you want to consider him poor. He was a very rich man <laughs> by the time he entered his career.
1: And then uh, his son as well. Yeah.
0: Exactly. And he passes on business to his son. I don't want to give it away, but he does. Well, maybe I shouldn't <laughs> give it away. Yeah, He, he loses his privilege. Um, in this, this battle, which is a transatlantic struggle, right? The petitioning is going back and forth, even as the, you know, the, the Spanish government has had to reconstitute itself in, in southern Spain, right? Um, and the question of news is, is viewed as a question of imperial security, right? Um, maintaining people's loyalty through the news um, and the fact that there's this sort of sneaky political intrigue going on is, is overlaid, you know, it, it, it sort of emphasizes the point that loyalty and the politics of printing were, um, you know, were really central to how, were beginning to emerge, right, in this period where where questions over legitimacy were beginning to be asked, right, who is actually in control, there's a power vacuum, then you have kind of debates over, over what, you know, who, who gets to print. Um, and so it's sort of a, a way of illustrating the the links between power and printing coming up for grabs, right, and becoming part of the uh, there's there's now um, kind of competition, right, over over how this medium should be should be used for the first time.
1: Yeah, these are all very interesting dramas. Um... <laughs> One of the most um, difficult and recurring issues uh, was that of establishing who was responsible uh, for a printed work, especially in cases where people could be imprisoned or lose their property. Mm -hmm. Um, Could you talk about the different perspectives and arguments used and why was this so important?
0: Yeah, and especially, so once freedom of the press is established in Mexico, um, briefly in 1812, but then in 1820 and onward, um, the question of how to enforce, like develop a practical system around press freedom is, becomes a, a really hotly debated issue that is actually unresolved for an entire century. Um, and that's one of the main threads that the book traces is the meandering um, ups and downs of efforts to regulate the press. And, you know, unlike his, uh, histories of, of press freedom in the past, I really focus on, on this question as a, an issue of trying to regulate printing, right? the idea that you actually can't understand the history of press freedom in Mexico without looking at the laboring dimensions, because precisely like you, like you say, um, officials, religious officials, secular officials um, and, and observers, intellectuals all focus on, you know, one of the main, main, main questions that they focus on is, is, the practicalities, right, of how to actually hold people accountable. And the legislation doesn't just identify authors, but also um, establishes a series of, a kind of chain of command, a of responsi- chain of responsibility um, that stops with the printer as the final figure. Uh, but it also establishes this question of a, what's called a responsible party, el responsable, where every um, printed document needs to have some proof of who had, who stands before the law. And this is, you know, gets to the question of how do you create a liberal um, system based around liberal individual, like individual rights and and responsibilities. So someone at the end of the day needs to be held to account for a printed document that might overstep the law. Um, and, And the question of who that someone is is gonna be hotly debated. And it's actually one of the places where, I would say ideological differences begin to emerge Um, early in the early Republic by the 1840, by the 1830s, you have um, conservatives arguing that you need to look at the printing shop as essentially a corporate community. Uh, And you need to hold everybody in the print shop responsible for printed materials. Because if you, if you don't, then authors are going to, you know, uh, publish things that exceed the boundaries of the law, and that the state should actually use the laws to conscript printers into being co-policers of public speech. Um, So these laws that are proposed by conservatives uh, attempt to uh, identify a whole range of actors from the printer to the typesetter to the person selling printed materials in the streets as potential culprits in a press crime. Um, and liberals have to respond to this effort. And as they do so, they develop their own kind of theories about what printing is and who's responsible for what. Their main goal being to protect individual authorship, right? And their argument you know, it's not that liberals want to get rid of all restrictions on freedom of the press. They share with conservatives a sort of concern that you need to have limits around what you can potentially say in print. Um, But they have a different idea about how to go about doing it. And they say that you have to have, you know, in order for a author, an individual author, and they're trying to create this idea of individual authorship and strengthen authorship as an individual category, you have to have um, the printer needs to be like a machine who just places mechanically the will of the author into physical form. Right. So the idea is that the the author's ideas need to flow freely, and the printer is simply a machine. Um, and if you ask the printer or task the printer with censoring, with a uh, you know interfering with the responsibility for this work, you're turning the printer into a sensor, right? And so this the printer becomes a sensor. And how could you expect a printer? Liberals would have said uh, to have the knowledge and intellectual capacity to judge. The words of their social superiors. So one of the sort of strategies that liberals use to oppose conservative efforts to include printers as kind of co-constructors of of uh, printing printed scandal um, is that you know they they appeal to the idea first that the printer will become like a new inquisitor, which obviously the Inquisition is becoming part of a liberal campaign to to distance itself right with with the colonial past. Um, but also the sort of class dimensions, right? You don't want untrained, unschooled artisans operating in back rooms with dirty fingers, um, you know, getting involved in judging what's cool and what's not, right, according to the law. So there's this real uh, kind of class overtone that goes along with liberals' efforts. Uh, but, But printers themselves are also really important theorists in this debate. They are not just passive bystanders, or machines, despite what liberals would say about them, in theory. Um, they have their own... Um, some of them become really outspoken activists. Um, one of them, who I talk about in chap- one of the chapters, Ignacio Cumplido, actually becomes a co-drafter of one of the press laws. Um, and his big argument is that you he, he cons- coincides with with liberals, that you need to free that printers needs to be free in their exercise of of their office um, as long as they follow, you know, all the basic prescriptions of the law. Um, For printers, press freedom is being – they construct press freedom as printer's freedom, right? So actually they – rather than embracing this idea of of authorship as the sort of fundamental basic necessity in order to have a system of of press freedom – um, they argue that the printer is the most, the, the character that me- needs to be, or the actor that needs to be protected by the law from state overreach. Um, and so the earliest laws, you know, in the 1840s are the earliest laws in which the printer is successfully able to. Um, Ignacio Cumplido co drafts this law where he inserts this concept of printer's freedom into, into the law. Um, and that is going to come and go throughout the 19th century. Liberal regime will adopt it, and then and then they'll get rid of it, right? <laughs> so part of what the book does is sort of trace printers' challenges and successes and, and and partial victories, right, in trying to have printers' freedom be recognized as like the fundamental core of press freedom.
1: Yeah, I, yeah, and it's certainly that your study of cumplido and his life and and all his like work is like. Very interesting. Um, And and he's also the um, printer of uh, El Siglo XIX, right? Uh, One of the main newspapers in in, uh, 19th century Mexico. Another um, important actor trying to define press freedom is, of course, the church and um, its power over the printed world diminishes apparently as the century progresses. Uh, you showed this in particular with the case of a French novel uh, Mysteries of the Inquisition and the religious authorities failed attempts to censor it and this is quite a funny affair actually. Um mm-hmm. could you talk about it? Yeah, um we you know we often the accounts
0: of of press freedom often sort of leave the church out of the picture but Um, The church is still an important actor until at least the mid-century and, you know, arguably always, always part of the conversation. Um, The Catholic Church retains rights to censor materials related to religious themes in early 19th century Mexico. And... um, You know, in practice, I think we still need more ground level studies to understand how these dynamics really work. If you listen to the church's own story, and according to, you know, a lot of the, some of the documents that I've seen, that the church is not very successful at exercising this prerogative of censorship, because state officials are not very helpful in complying with, you know, cooperatively with, with the church and, you know, the efforts to create um, you know, what scholars call a kind of Catholic liberal Mexico are marked by tensions from the beginning, right? The practicalities of how do you share power with the Catholic churches um, leads to a lot of tensions and, and conflict. Uh, and, and publishing is one of the areas where you can see that dynamic at work. Um, I, I, I focus in one of the chapters on this, yeah, the publishing of this novel, um, Los Misterios de la Inquisición, Mysteries of the Inquisition, which is this Um, I mean, it's a fun novel to read. It's a forgotten bestseller that was translated all around the world, you know, it was published in, in was written in Paris by a team, a woman who was French and her lover who was Spanish and exile, a liberal exile from Spain. Um, And it's one of these sort of it plays to a kind of black legend or um, an enlightened catholic critique of the inquisition as this corrupt institution that was imposed on the spanish monarchy and that needs to you know and was and, and these these caricatures of of a kind of repressive catholic world or repressive catholicism were really flourished flourished in the 19th century as liberalism advanced around the atlantic world and was used as a kind of wedge against Um, a political wedge against church power you know a way of kind of riling up anti-clerical sentiment Um, so the the novel's content is very explosive it's about you know these corrupt inquisitors who um, scheme to defile a virginal woman who manages to evade their schemes and escape to the protestant netherlands where she lives happily ever after with her (laughs) with her love her beloved Um, and so it's a you know it's a it's a funny st- it's a fun story to read, um, but it you know it's published in Mexico by a radical printer, um, Vicente Garcia Torres, who he sort of steals the edition from Cumplido, who was planning yeah. to publish it first. So there's also there's all these different threads right that are captured in these in these in these great e- examples um, these case studies of inter you know, competition in the publishing industry uh, and then the polemics that would result in the press, um, this sort of three-way polemic about the novel runs for six months. And it, it takes months, you know, front page news coverage where the, the number one topic of the day is discussing a French novel. Um, and and it becomes a sort of, you know, a kind of culture war flashpoint over efforts to implement liberalism. But what's the, you know, the, the polemic itself is interesting, but when things, things really get interesting is when the church takes action, right? So part of, I think, the, the role of these polemics in the press is to generate some kind of act, action that can advance the political field, right? If you think about printing as a kind of political sphere, um, there are tactics and strategies involved, right? So that's one of the things I try to flesh out in the book. Um, some of the ways that polemics might have served to lay the groundwork for uh, legal or political action. And when the Catholic Church decides to ban the book, it asks the state for help with enforcement um, and and asks the state to do its part as, you know, explain in the laws and confiscate the copies that have been sold. And this sort of triggers a whole confrontation between the, the state and the church officials at the highest level, sort of debating where are our responsibilities you know who gets to do what um, and the editor of this the publisher of, of the the novel this printer is very savvy at uh, kind of engineering this 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 showdown um, and he manages to kind of get away without any consequences and the state is not ready the year is 1850 the state is not ready to confront the church over this issue and say you know we're kicking you out of the of the censorship party. Um, But they also try to deflect the issue and portray the, the, the the church as weak as a weakened institution um, that really can't do anything about it. And and one of the interesting arguments that the printer makes uh, when he's trying to kind of deflect or navigate this, this controversy is he tries to recast uh, printed materials as the private property of his readers, right. So he's using a kind of liberal rhetoric about reading the, this creating this, this character of almost a, like a citizen reader whose property rights, right whose, whose property rights are more important than the uh, than you know the, the, the Catholic Church is a sort of overreaching power trying to take away their their property rights and, and no longer has, Uh, enforcement power over their possessions, right? Only their consciences. So it's an attempt to kind of decouple the church's enforcement power over material objects um, with this, this sort of liberal argument, right? About, about books as, as property, not essentially ideas um, or, you know, scandalous, immoral, anti-Catholic propositions. Um, And the church is, it's really interesting because the church can only do so much to respond uh, it actually realizes, church officials realize that provoking a confrontation with uh, the people who own these printed materials is going to be counterproductive, right? Because who can afford to purchase these objects is mostly um, well-heeled elites, many of whom are involved in politics, right? So um, they try to cut a deal with the Minister of, 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 of uh, Ecclesiastical Affairs where they promise that they'll only confiscate the book version of this novel, but not the newspaper version, because it's also being published in serial in the newspaper. Uh, If you tried to confiscate the newspapers of Mexico City readers, I think there'd be an uproar because this is where elites go to, to read the political transcript, right? It's where congressional debates are published, where political commentary takes place. And by reprinting the novel in serial in the newspaper, uh, you know the the printer has essentially ensured that it's part of the political record, the political transcript, and the 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 church has its hands tied and can't really um, confront readers over these questions. So you know it's a really interesting case study that illuminates not only the strategies and um, and tactics of a of a publishing controversy, um, but also the dilemmas that church and state officials had to navigate, that were sort of the tensions that were thrown into relief, into movement by uh, a printer who is is essentially intentionally provoking controversy, right, in order to kind of advance the political field and be able to make his case for why the church should not have any enforcement power over printed materials. Um,
1: And the church has very interesting, like, gender arguments mm. to justify that they want to take out of circulation the book form of this novel.
0: Yeah, I think the the church, you know, they're trying. The church is, is sort of trying to figure out who is reading these novels and why it is that they should be not uh, they should be confiscated. And and the suggestion they don't they don't say this explicitly, but I think the suggestion is that the readers of a novel, the sort of standalone novel, would be a, a feminine public um and also potentially an uneducated public um they sort of think that um you know the inca- i think they call them incautious and uneducated readers um you don't know, need to be protected so the people who read newspapers are presumed to be educated by the church right and so they don't need tutelage they know how to or you know you don't want to get into a conflict with the male heads of household whereas you know a standalone novel is going to be circulating amongst populations that they don't want reading the book. And, you know, the, the novel's plot, it features this really daring heroine who can, you know, defies patriarchal authorities and gets away with it and comes out looking good. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And there's even uh, a a secret heroine who is a woman Disguising herself as a priest, who avenges her brother's death by killing the inquisitor in the last scene. It's like amazing (laughs) in the climax of the book. Yeah, so um, and with images, yes. Oh, it's with and there's illustrations in the novel. That's the other really important thing. Right, the newspaper is not really a space of visual, uh, you know, excitement. Right at this time in the mid 19th century, it's mostly just text and some small images on the back page, um, advertisements and things, but. the novel is full of these reproductions of French engraving. So it's like bringing French ways of seeing, you know, (laughs) into Mexican homes is, is considered not, not acceptable by the Catholic church. Um, But they don't achieve their goal in the end, although they do excommunicate people who, who (laughs) read, you know, so it's a question of like, the church's power becoming a power over conscience, right? And losing its kind of material enforcement.
1: Right. And you also study how, you mentioned before, this is a country with a long printing tradition and the oldest in the Western hemisphere, but the national government actually had a lot of difficulties in establishing and sustaining its own printing shop and having to constantly recur to private shops to print official paperwork. Um, Why was it so? And could we describe some of these uh, failed attempts?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think Mexico is is a pretty early innovator in the Americas in trying to found its own national printing shop. It's one of the first things that the government does when when a republic is established in 1823. And the idea of kind of having sovereignty over your own printing apparatus is identified as really important for the state uh, to be able to issue its laws, its decrees, its government newspaper to defend its line, all of this stuff. Um, but the early experiments with, with a state information apparatus only lasts for a few years. And and the cost is, I think, I think it's just too expensive and too much of a hassle. So the government shuts it down and sells the presses to, um, to, to, a well-connected um, political figure who then basically sets up his own print shop and publishes prints for the government for many years, for a couple of decades. Um, and there's all sorts of anxieties that go along with the fact that the national government depends on a contractor to produce all of its official materials. So, you know, if you look at the archival evidence, there's just you know huge numbers of letters back and forth over it. <laughs> How do we make sure that the information is being printed correctly and that, you know, there's even I I encountered a case where somebody tried to scam Mexican readers by creating a fake official newspaper that they were (laughs) selling on the side. Um, So basically, um, and after the death of this long term contractor, there becomes this whole patronage, a shift to a patronage model where whoever's in power basically gives the printing contract to their political allies so you have this i think it's another let's see from 48 for another 20 years where the contract is sort of bouncing back and forth as a sort of form of political patronage Um, so this you know and all of this you know every time there's a shift in power which in those years is is pretty pretty frequently you have a whole new set of contract documents drafted um and a whole new cast of characters and and um, the state eventually tries to kind of address this again during when Maximilian invades Mexico in the 1860s. He, re, he sort of takes up the project of an official print works. And, you know, this is an idea that is an old, you know, it's an idea that, that probably takes inspiration from the French, um, you know, 17th century royal print shop. And that was embraced by the Bourbons in Spain in Madrid with the creation of, of a national library and print works. Um, and then the Mexican government kind of takes this central state uh, information apparatus as, as a, a goal of it. So that it, it follows, you know, it takes up again uh, and Maximilian attempts to, to create this. But um, when he's kicked out of power, the liberal government that replaces him kind of co opts his, his press And creates the National Government Printing Office. So that's the 1870s is a turning point where the national government begins to be able to create a kind of state presence in print, kind of a printed image of the state, if you will. Um, And that is a real expansion of the state's ability to kind of speak for itself in print um, and marks a kind of shift in relationships between printers in Mexico City and and the government, because prior to this, I think one of the factors that helps to explain why the Mexico City government is constantly, or I'm sorry, the, the national government, which is based in Mexico City, is constantly harassing Mexico City printers speaks to its own kind of insecurities over its own printed output and its inability to kind of represent itself in its own position um, in this field of, of printing politics, like as a, a key participant. Um, and so it's not until the 1870s where the state is able to establish that presence. And then it's, you know, its output really multiplies the kinds of things it publishes, not just decrees and laws and newspapers, but um, you know, textbooks, works of history, um, things that allow for a more ideological kind of nation building, uh, the construction of a, of a liberal, liberal ideas of the nation um, through government publications. So it's a, a sort of long-term project or goal that is finally realized in uh, the post um, Maximilian era of the, the liberal restored republic and beyond.
1: And um, let's let's talk a little bit about the um, press workers themselves. Um, Throughout the book, you describe like, various stereotypes uh, and uh, regarding them and the kind of work they do, and usually not very flattering ones. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the most interesting responses uh, to this social perception comes in the form of a very particular type specimen that you analyze towards the end of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, could you talk about this type specimen and maybe first explain what these documents were?
0: Yeah, um, this is one of my favorite sources that I that I encountered when I was doing research for the project. Um it's like said, yeah, <laughs> it's really cool. Yeah, um, printers are are often characterized as you know either these sort of money grubbing mercenaries who will print anything for money, or partisan hacks who just follow the line that they're associated with. Um, and by the eighteen seventies, we finally get some evidence of printers sort of print workers, right? Obviously. You know, more powerful figures like Ignacio Cumplido or Vicente García Torres have opportunities to create and craft public persona and participate in public debates at a very high level. But the print workers behind the scenes don't have a ton of opportunity to kind of contest the negative depictions of their, of their craft. Also, you know, all these jokes about printers as sort of illiterate, even though they're connected, you know, they set type, but they don't know what they what their are typesetting and, you know, they don't know what they're doing. Or the famous caricature from Los Mexicanos Pintados por sí mismos, which is this mid-century costumbrista work where the printer is shown, the type compositor is shown as this social climber whose aspirations threaten to destabilize like the, the social foundations of, of, um, of respect, you know, bring about the downfall of respectable society. Um, and printers respond to this in the 19th century, both in the artisan press, which is this new, you know, the expansion of. Uh, the economic expansion allows for new forms of um, of uh, publications like worker magazines and um, you have printers acting increasingly as as writers as commentators um, and behind the scenes of the government printing shop they used in this one case the opportunity of a change in um, political power to create this type specimen which expresses their kind of view from behind the scenes of of their of themselves and their and their labor. Um, so type specimens are these documents that are professional documents used in in the printing trades around the world. They give you like a panorama of all the different typefaces that a print shop has on hand. Um, and you know, a little sample, they basically reproduce a sample of type Um, that shows like all the different styles that you can use. Um, Sometimes they're, they're kind of like catalogs that customers can pick and choose from, or in this case, they're a display that's sent to bureaucratic superiors as a kind of accounting of the state of the print shop at this moment of political transition. And it's really wonderful because it's not a really professionally useful document. It doesn't have like, you need to have a numbering system and it's supposed to be all well laid out and, and uh and orderly, but they basically throw order out the window and create a list, like a catalog of of their cultural and political touchstones, where they name all of the heroes that they, you know, the people that they viewed as heroes in Mexican but also world history. Um so it's this really wonderful space of cultural references where you see the contours of of a kind of print worker worldview. Um, It's very liberal. It's full of liberal heroes. Um, It's full of references to classical mythology, to, uh, you know, very Western civilizational bent, right? Very, a lot of European men. Um, There's not very many women in this document. It's a very sort of homosocial world. Um, Everyone's a hero for the most part. You know, there are people who are famous artists, musicians, writers, politicians, and it really uh, links, you know, it links Mexico's liberal struggle to a kind of global liberal struggle. Um, Mexican heroes are rubbing elbows with uh, people associated with Italian unification, with um, the French and, and Spanish sort of liberal uh, effort, you know, efforts to establish liberalism in France and Spain that are happening around the same time that this document is produced. And so it sort of has a sort of Mexico pride as a sort of successful liberal state in this world where liberalism is still kind of struggling against reactionary forces. Um, so it's this really interesting document. And it also sort of establishes printers as a special class of workers who are well-suited to kind of interpret um, and facilitate this world of, of literate production, right? The printers are oftentimes, not just in this document, but in, in their writings in the press, Um, asking for respect and recognition for their their work as the facilitators of literate culture Um, and uh, they show a kind of ambivalence towards the dirty work that they do on the job. So I read these literary documents as a kind of expression of printers' aspirations um, in some ways to transcend their behind-the-scenes status and their laboring status and to be recognized as co-constructors of knowledge. So in you know various parts of the book, I kind of analyze some of the ways in which print workers uh, and printers are trying to push back against these ideas that they are machines, that they're unthinking, that they don't really contribute except in material ways um, to excavate um, and bring forward some of the ways that they engage creativity as thinkers and intellectuals with their own opinions and views on on politics um, and and social you know social questions in the nineteenth century.
1: Yeah, I cannot imagine what kind of uh, reaction or response this specimen uh, provoked Mm -hmm. in the director, especially because they included some of the report. And yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how they responded, but
0: I think probably their boss was fired anytime soon. So it's (laughs) hard to tell if there was a lot of turnover in the moment it was created. So I don't know how people responded, but it was filed away so that we could find it in the future. (laughs) Yay. (laughs)
1: Um, And then briefly, would you like to... Uh, describe the changes you observed during the Porfirio Diaz regime, and how did uh, they eventually af- affect the dynamics of the 1910 revolution?
0: Yeah, so Diaz, you know, represents this moment where liber- of, of liberalism's transformation in Mexico. Um, and his government really abandons what uh, liberals from the restored republic, the victory against the French, had essentially embraced as printers' freedom as a central part of press freedom, right? So mid-century liberals did embrace that idea. um, But Diaz kind of abandons that commitment to uh, protecting printers' labors. And, you know, as many listeners probably know, the 19th century, you know, there's a lot of effort on, uh, a lot of emphasis on, on economic progress, right, rather than political freedom. So the emphasis sort of shifts. And you can see that shift in the printing world as well. Um, where discourses about the printing press as like a, you know, a a machine that brings greater freedom for everyone shifts to being about how to bring greater, you know, economic benefits to Mexican society. Uh, And printers sort of um, experience the the Porphyrian regime's emphasis on technology in the service of progress um, in new ways. Uh, Specifically, Diaz uh, begins to use his regime anyways – uses seizures of printing presses as a, a tactic to sort of discipline the Mexico City print world. Um, and in, in law, you know, judges and, and other, you know, legal actors construe printing presses as a kind of uh, what's called the cuerpo del delito, part of the corpus delicti, the body of a crime, like a, a, a knife or a weapon that's used in the construction of a crime. So printers have to sort of navigate this new world in which the law is kind of reconfiguring the printing press, not so much as printers, um, you know, part of an essential tool for a property or for their labor, um, but as a potential criminal agent. Um, so these printing presses kind of gain new life uh, and the Diaz regime attempts to kind of sh- use or shape technology, not just Diaz, but also broader kind of commentators and printing industry um manufacturers and the like, trying to reconfigure the meanings of print and the meanings of printing um, in Mexican society. So that chapter, you know, one of the things that happens with the Mexican Revolution is a a return to the mid-century ideals uh, that guarantee printers' freedoms um, and and, uh, actually elevates those concerns into the body of the 1917 Revolutionary Constitution itself. So the Constitution um, actually puts printers' freedoms into its text, which had never been there before. It was always in a press law. Um, so in reaction to Diaz's crackdowns on printing on printers and printing presses, um, the constitution's drafters uh, ensure printers uh, kind of enshrine printers' labor, print workers' labor, and printers' property rights over their printing presses into the Mexican Constitution. So there's a kind of dual, kind of social, but also classic kind of liberal emphasis on, on property that's embedded into the revolutionary constitution. Uh, but then with another, uh, you know, w- with the same breath, the, the constitution says, and then you should look at this press law to define who is responsible for printing. <laughs> and so it goes back, it's amazing. It actually cycles back to the very same logics and language of the 1820 l- laws that regulate printing. So printers gain this victory of having themselves kind of elevated into the Constitution, um, but also are the victims of their own success at inserting themselves into the political conversation uh, because the new press laws define all sorts of ways in which print workers and printers could potentially become responsible. And actually it expands its definition of the press to include this vast array of media forms and communication that never existed in press laws previously you know it used to be just when you talked about freedom of the press they were talking about the printing press um, now by 1917 these lawmakers are like these media anthropologists who are like like thinking about the this changing media world of the early 20th century and including not just you know all these new technologies like film and uh, photography in their definitions of the press but they're also including kind of a revolutionary consciousness of of communications into this law. So they imagine that, you know, singing, shouting, song, you know, making um, <laughs> yeah. the signs with your hands could be potentially interpreted as, as, as press, you know, something related to the press. So it's sort of like a, the net for regulating printing is contracting even as it's expanding in new ways, um, which I found a really interesting. And I, I, you know, I hope that future studies of 20th century media cultures will sort of take up that with a question of how those those laws were implemented in practice. I know there's already some works that, that touch upon them. Um, but now that I've sort of traced this 19th century conversation, I think it raises new questions
1: about what happens next. <laughs> and talking about what happens next, um, uh, <laughs> before wrapping up, could you, could you tell us a little bit of what you're working on now? Yeah, um, I'm sort of,
0: Well, I'm doing some small things and trying to think big, but with pandemic times, it's been a challenge. Um, I'm working on an article right now about how uh, late 19th century statesmen, scholars, artists collaborated and used new photomechanical reproduction technologies and printmaking techniques to uh, represent and repackage Mexican, Mesoamerican codices for broader publics. So mm. I'm looking at in particular this work, um, the m- the multi-volume work Mexico a través de los siglos, which is this amazing illustrated five-volume work published in the 1890s between Mexico and Spain that is uh, full of these reproductions of codices, but in these interesting fragmentary ways, like they were imagined. You imagine a codex and you chop it into a million fragments and you represent them in new ways. Um, not for scholarly audiences, but for a kind of broader bourgeois public. So I'm kind of trying to grapple with the way that that people are using these new technologies that are making it easier to um, put text and image on the same page uh, with new printing technologies, um, and how that sort of shapes the way that Mesoamerican codices are becoming part of a visual repertoire in late 19th century Mexico. So that's my small project. And I'm thinking very, very, very uh, early stages about a project about paper um, in Latin America in the post-colonial era. And it would be a sort of material, political, and environmental history of, of paper. Um, this was came to my interest when doing research for this project. I was reading about how insurgents in the 18-teens uh, were trying to figure out how to make paper so that they could have some kind of material to feed into their presses for, for propaganda purposes. And, you know, it started getting me thinking about, like, how do people deal with the question of paper, especially in the post-colonial era when the traditional connections with Spain and, and European paper, paper supplies are breaking down and Mexican and Latin American states around, you know, around the region have to reconstitute some kind of paper supply Um, So if anyone out there, any listeners has any good tips (laughs) for for things to pursue with paper, uh, in its sort of material political cultural environmental dimensions uh, send me an email please <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah wow that, that all sounds really fascinating I'm looking forward to reading your work again <laughs> and um, well and once again thank you so much for speaking with us today this book uh, is amazing it was a pleasure speaking to you and yeah i uh, looking forward to hearing from you again thank you so much Candela it's been a lot of fun